Thank you, worship team, and good morning. I am pleased to announce I am still alive. My wife saw our new condo. Did I get a thumbs up, sweetie? I'm getting two thumbs up. Apparently we did okay. It has been a wonderful week being here with you. We've had the opportunity to do some visitation and uh, get out some of the events. Uh, many of you are aware Dorothy's actually been sick for most of the week, so we found a new doctor in town, which is kind of nice, so we know where we're going to be, uh, uh, what medical clinic we'll be attending moving forward, but uh, we're also thankful she's feeling much better. And for those of you who wondered what my son looked like, he was the one in the coat on the quizzing bench. Bring back memories, buddy. Yeah. He used to actually fly out to Midwest District. We don't have quizzing in BC, so we used to fly him out and he used to quiz with his old Vanguard team for a number of years. And so he's been in the church more than we had been up until recently. So it's good to be with you. Thank you for your prayers. Some of you were aware we were actually at a funeral yesterday for a dear friend of ours from our very first church. Uh, relatively young gentleman, had just taken early retirement, diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer, and he passed away. And it was difficult to say goodbye. We're so thankful we were in the area, able to go and to be with him and his family yesterday. Thank you for your prayers. And if you think to pray, our students are returning to college, which means they're going to be driving. I was thinking of that. We were driving out to uh, Hague last night for something just to kind of wrap up our time here, and the snow was starting to blow, and I'm thinking, I've got students coming in from all over Western Canada. So if you think to pray for us, we'd appreciate it. It's been good to be here. Two months, we'll be here permanently. It will be so nice, but we are so thankful for the time we've had, thankful to Redicops for their home, and thankful to you for your, your warm welcome. It is so good to be among God's people. With this in mind, would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you that you've called us as your people. I thank you for these folks that are now our family, for their love, their grace with us. Lord, guide us in our time together. And as we look into your word this morning, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd challenge us, that you'd encourage us, and that you'd change us. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If I were to ask you, what defines Arendelle Alliance Church? What is it that really sets us apart? What is it that God, in his grace and his mercy, has called us to? What would you answer? What is it that has drawn you personally here to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why this church? I think about the church we attend in Salmon Arm. I was actually a little surprised to be to be frank, we went there one Sunday just so the pastor wouldn't give me a hard time. He's an old friend of mine. They'd been uh, our pastoral couple when we were in uh, Trailview and Swift Current. One of the pastors on staff really liked the folks, but just didn't expect this church to be a fit. We went one Sunday, and by the end of the service, we all looked at each other as a family went, I, I think we know where we're going to be attending. Because moving to a new community, we had five or six possible places to go. And God made it clear this is where he wanted us for the season. But what is it about Arendelle that drew you here? I don't ask this as a negative. I ask this as a positive because we need to be very intentional. We need to be very mindful. God has placed his call upon this congregation for a reason. He has something he wants Arendelle Alliance Church to do that he's not asking any other church in Saskatoon to do. And he's not asking us to be one of those other churches, just as he's not asking any other church to be Arendale. I want you to hear this. Listen to these words. We desire to be a united body of believers, 
committed to loving God and by the working of the Holy Spirit, being obedient to Christ as we seek to fulfill Christ's purpose for his church. And the purpose of the church, fulfilling the Great Commission by sharing Christ with our city, country, and the nations. That's drawn from Matthew 28. And devoting ourselves to biblical teaching, caring for each other, prayer, worship, fellowship, and communion. That's drawn from Acts chapter 2. Those statements I just read are from our vision statement. This is who we are sensing God calling us to be. And I want to leave this in front of us for the coming months. We're here this Sunday. We're going to disappear for a couple of months, go wrap up our ministry in BC with Miller College of the Bible, and then we will be here. And as, we were, as we've been talking about this at various levels and as I've been praying through this, my sense for this, this coming season, we're going to spend some time in the book of Acts. As we attempt to get a glimpse of what is Christ's heart for the church global and the church national, but in particular, to begin to ask the question, who is Jesus Christ calling us as Arendale Alliance Church to be? What is the ministry he's given us to do? And what is it to look like? And so with this in mind, we've already read Acts chapter two, uh, sorry, Acts chapter one. We're gonna spend this morning in those first 11 verses of Acts chapter one. I encourage you, please bring your Bibles. We will try and get the scriptures up on the screen. Some of you, digital device. I was talking to somebody this week and they asked me about that. I actually carry my entire reference library on my telephone. I love modern technology. I've got eight or $10,000 American worth of reference books. I've got commentary sets and Greek dictionaries and Hebrew dictionaries, and, and I think I've got like Spanish and French and German. I don't speak Spanish or French or German. I uh, can't really read Hebrew anymore because it's been a few years. But it's all on my phone. Some of you carry it that way. Some of you, though, are also like me. There's something about a book, and this is the Word of God. Uh, somebody asked me this week, just as we move forward, what is the translation I use? I'm actually going to use NIV this morning. This is my 1984. This was my Christmas present from my parents years ago. Normally, though, I typically use the CSB, the Christian Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible, I'm sorry, out of Holman, very similar to NIV, but if you want to talk about why and how, happy to have that conversation. But people have been kind of asking, so what translation can we expect you to use going forward? CSB is, has really become my favorite. Uh, but this morning we'll be in the NIV. But consider with me Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. Luke is picking up his story. Of course, we know his first section of the story is the Gospel of Luke, and he goes through and begins with the story of Jesus' birth and all of the detail that went in and was happening in and around the time as God, in his grace and mercy, selected not just Mary, but also Joseph. And Joseph, to me, is the forgotten hero of the Christmas story because when God chose Mary... To give birth to his son, he also chose Joseph to be the stepfather, the surrogate father for Jesus' time on earth, and Joseph for his entire life would be questioned in terms of his character because no one would ever believe that God supernaturally impregnated Mary. And so he carried that, and yet we get this portrait of this, this man who when God comes to him and says, don't be afraid, she's honorable, go and take Mary as your wife, that this young man would step up and would be obedient. I, I just love that story and I think sometimes we really forget poor 
Joseph. We have uh, the, the account of all the details going on in the ancient world. And then Luke will pause and he'll give us Jesus' genealogy. And in contrast to Matthew, he goes all the way back to Adam. Because Luke wants to make it clear, this Messiah who's come to save the world is not just the Messiah of the Jews. That's too small a thing. The Messiah who has come traces his very lineage back to Abraham. And as the curse came through the one man, Adam, and as the curse came through Adam, whereby he brought sin to the whole human race, the second Adam, to use the language of Paul from Romans, will bring redemption. And Luke takes us all the way back, and then we'll go on and talk about all the things. And Luke, at the start of his gospel, he says, I, I didn't see any of this. I'm not an eyewitness, but I've researched it carefully. I love Luke. I researched it carefully. Of course, he's got a bit of an inside track because he knows Peter personally. He travels with Paul. He is in relationship with the apostles, the very men who saw and heard and ate and slept and walked with Jesus. And then he picks up the story now in Acts chapter, or sorry, in Acts chapter one. In my former book, here's what I laid out. Now we're in part two. Of course, that interesting question, is Theophilus a real person or not? Probably he is, but we're not sure. The name's a little suspect. means God lover. Real person, or is he speaking to all of us? Well, clearly Luke knows this is going to be shared. But notice what he writes for us. Giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs he was alive. And what's interesting, and the first thing I want us to take from this as we watch how Luke conveys the story to us is we have two things that are colliding here in Acts chapter 1 already to establish what our, where we're going to go in the church, and that is that the objective truth of who Jesus is and the subjective experience that we have of God coming and meeting with us are colliding, and it's not one or the other. But we have Jesus giving the proofs, but we also have Jesus there with them in person, and they read the stories, and they know the theology. And even Peter, a fisherman, or John, a fisherman, knows Scripture. They have that objective reality, but they also walk with Jesus. They see him, and we know from the end of the gospel accounts, at one point, Thomas has said, I will only believe if I can see it with my own eyes. And at one point, he's actually sticking his fingers into the wounds of Christ. And I remember being hurt one time and one of my kids coming up and wanting to poke it. I wasn't happy about this. I kind of want to know what Jesus' reaction was when Thomas is kind of I, I, my portrait of Christ generally is someone who is really enjoying life. I think he has a pretty good sense of humor. Humor, it's, you know, God's got a sense of humor. Giraffe is proof God has a sense of humor. Like, hello, let's take a horse. And so I kind of wonder if there wasn't a little bit of a smile and she's, go ahead and touch me. Yes, Thomas, I'm real. But interestingly, we have this, this objective and the subjective. And think about your own walk with Jesus, those times where the Spirit of God has come and met with you profoundly. And you know in the depth of your soul, the creator of the universe knows your name. But we also come to Scripture where it says, the creator of the universe knows your name. We need both of them. I need my experiences in prayer and fellowship and in communion with God 
and my experiences fellowshipping with my fellow believers and hearing your testimonies about what it is that Christ has done for you. And I share the testimony of what it is that Christ has done for me. And we hear and we come back and we again gather around the word of God, which will guide us. And we invite the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. So our first observation here, we have reason, we have experience, and the two are working together. And we see this happening with the apostles unless you think that they even have it all figured out. There's actually a really funny moment here when they ask, when are you going to reestablish the kingdom? I don't know if you've considered this, but in the aftermath of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles are confused. They don't really know what's happened. Any of you experienced this? It's like, what just happened? I don't know what just happened. That was important, but I don't understand. In my case, it was called my wedding. That was a joke. <laughs> I, I still remember wedding day and standing and looking at my wife and we do our vows and she came in and I started to cry and my one buddy's like, <clears throat> kind of making fun because he, he's one of those jaded, cynical types. Um, and, and you do your vows and you go off and you start life together and as life goes on, you realize I had no idea. I had no clue. None. I'm so glad. I like to reassure my engaged students, trust me, engagement isn't all that much fun. It gets better. And all the engaged ones are going, oh, good. I've got one poor guy. I always tell him, don't do a long engagement. What's he do? 14 months in different provinces. Dude, I warned you. Yeah, I'm starting to understand. Oh, don't do it. Well, I didn't know what I was in for. The apostles didn't understand what they're in for. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They are asking a question that reflects. They don't actually understand anything that's just happened the last three years. Well, they kind of do and they kind of don't. They know the kingdom needs to go out. They know that Jesus is doing something, but they don't understand. They're still thinking political kingdom. They're still thinking deliverance from the Romans. They're still thinking Israel gets to be a nation again and again. It is too small a thing. So take reassurance from this. After spending two or three, maybe a little bit more years with Jesus, his apostles still didn't understand. So for those of us who after walking with Jesus a few years, feel like we don't understand, we're in good company because Peter, James, and John didn't either. But this takes us to our next observation. We're not going to understand, so God makes a way. Notice what he says. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, and which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John himself at the start of his ministry said, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to Tie up. I baptize with water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, there's a bit of an irony there. Because apparently he was being literal. Because tongues of fire will descend. Jesus himself says in his, in his lead in, in the upper room discourse, in the gospel of John, it's good for you that I go away because we'll send the comforter. He will guide you in all truth. So not only are we gathered in fellowship and hearing and experiencing and knowing the truth of Scripture and knowing the experience we have of God, but the second thing that we're reminded of here in Acts chapter 1, the gift of the Spirit is to guide us into all truth. 
The disciples walked with Jesus. The disciples have the Old Testament. They have the Torah. And yet Jesus says, you need something more. You need the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts and in your lives. And what will happen when he comes? He will baptize you with power. You want an example of the power of the Spirit of God? Peter. I pick on Peter a lot. I love Peter. But to me, Peter is the attention deficit disciple. He has no clue what's going on most of the time. Hey, Lord, can I come out of the boat? So he gets out of the boat, starts walking across the water, and then he actually stops to think about what he does. And it's like, oh, that's maybe a bad idea, and then he starts to sink. One time, he will get the question right in all the Gospels, once. And only a few verses later, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Back to normal. After the coming of the Holy Spirit, how many mistakes are recorded to Peter? One. Why? Because the Spirit of God comes and transforms this fisherman who was fiery and zealous and loved God. And I look at the example of Peter and I, 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 I want to, I'm just in awe of this man. I can see why Jesus picked him. Fiery, passionate, zealous, but in desperate need of help, the Spirit comes and transforms this fisherman to the point that when he stands up and speaks in front of the intellectual lead of his day, the Sanhedrin will look at each other after he's done speaking going, isn't he a fisherman? Who is this man? Like, where did he get this? I had this happen in my church. Church we attend in Salmon Arm. I got talking with, uh, actually, a, a friend of mine uh, married this guy, and I didn't know anything of his background. I just knew he kind of worked in, in different non-governmental agencies, and we start talking, and I made some comment afterwards about freshmen or something, he started talking, and it turned into a 30-minute conversation that hurt my head. And I asked his wife afterwards, what is your husband? Well, I probably should have told you, he has a PhD in English literature. Uh, I kind of would have liked to have known that before the conversation started, because then I started backtracking all the stupid things I said. Peter goes from being just a fisherman who loves God, wants the best for his people, and becomes the pillar of the church. This man who is fiery and excited, the first day he's going to stand up and preach a sermon, thousands of people will get saved. Well, the story does not stop there. Wait, the Holy Spirit will come. We got this question now about when are they going to come. Third observation from this text. We need to make sure that we put our priorities in the right place. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons but instead, here are your marching orders. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's an interesting progression because this actually becomes the model that the book of Acts is now going to follow. Because Acts will start, as Luke records the story, he'll tell us what goes on in Jerusalem. And then as persecution breaks out, actually at the hands of Saul, who will become Paul, it's going to spread to Judea and then very quickly to Samaria as that persecution ramps up. And then Saul, on his way from Samaria to Damascus, is going to become the catalyst that's going to spread it to the ends of the earth. 
And we're going to see that Paul's going to go off and he's going to be in places like Rome and Corinth, visiting the churches and doing ministry. We're going to find Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, and they're going to be traveling the world. We're going to find out that men like Matthew and Thomas will leave and they will take the gospel out. And Luke will record for us as the gospel begins to go out and begins to spread. And actually, one of my favorite moments in the book of Acts, now and again, Luke will say, oh, and then we did this and we did this because he's not there for Jerusalem. He's not there for Judea. Sort of there for Samaria because we think he's actually part of that Antioch church. But he'll be part of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need to keep our focus where it is supposed to be. We have a mandate to take the love and mercy of Jesus Christ out to the nations. Starting with our own homes, starting with our own neighborhoods, starting with our own country, yes, but not at the exclusion of all of these other places. Acts 1 reminds us that we have reason and we have experience. We need the word of God and we need to share our experiences of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We're reminded of the need for the Holy Spirit. I cannot live the Christian life on my own. I cannot trust myself to understand Scripture on my own. But as the Holy Spirit comes and ministers to my soul, and as I surrender to the work of the Spirit, and for me it's every day, and for you it should be every day, and I'm trying to learn what it means to be moment by moment, depending on the Spirit. He guides us into all truth. He empowers us. He molds us. He transforms us. We were reminded of the fruit of the Spirit this morning as Aaron and the kids were reciting, because that's what it looks like when the Spirit of God lives in our souls and transforms us. The reminder, we need to take the gospel out. We need to be on mission. And interestingly, in our DNA as Arendelle Alliance Church, one of the things we've identified is exactly this kind of language that we need to be sharing the gospel. And so we need to be asking, what does that look like? How are we to do this? We've got ESL. ESL does a marvelous job of sharing the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. But it's not enough. We've got children's programs. It's not enough. I love Bible quizzing. And I'm excited to see young Bible quizzers come and do their quiz work. And I'm actually dialoguing with one of my former students who came through the quiz program, came through the college. She's on furlough from France. She's a missionary. Because that's a piece. What are we doing to reach our city? What are we doing to reach our families? Two more things I want to draw out of this. There was an interesting observation made, and I noticed, and I'm... I'm not around Arendelle enough yet to get a sense of this, so bear with me. You can maybe guide me in this. We want to see revival. We want to see God begin to do something in our land, start in our homes, and begin a transforming work. And I've, I think I've caught people occasionally making comments about specifically praying for revival. And revival is like praying for missions. The difference is revival is it starts with us and it spreads out. Missions is recognizing we've got to get the gospel out there. And for me, I think they're two sides of the same thing and, and we need to be actively engaged in both. Here's, here's my fourth observation from Acts chapter 1. And it actually goes back to King Josiah. If we desire to see revival, and I think we need to, 
And probably on a personal level, if I'm honest, there are days I need to be revived because I feel dead inside and I need the Spirit of God to come and enliven me. I need the Word of God to come and speak truth to my soul. I need to be reminded of what am I doing and why am I doing it, where am I going, and we as a church probably need revival to remind us this is what God's calling us to and this is where we're going. We as a church in Canada, we're we're, we're now a missions-receiving country. Think about that for a moment. They're sending missionaries to us. If we're to be revived, what's it look like? Fourth observation comes out of the life of Josiah. When King Josiah was young, they heard or or he, he discovers that they're not walking in right relationship with God. They find the law. They begin to proclaim the law again. And that becomes a part of this process of revival. And the observation's been made, and I think this is so important. Revival starts in two places. It starts in prayer as God's people earnestly seek that if God doesn't move, we have nothing. We can't do anything. We can't fix anything. We can't program our way into being holy and righteous. We need God to come meet us. But the second side besides that prayer that is so desperate and cries out to God is this idea that revival also happens when we actively engage with the Word of God and invite the Word of God to speak truth to our life and tell us what life means. Think about that for a moment. Tell us what life means. I had a really interesting conversation with somebody this week. Fabulous conversation. It was such a blessing to my soul. And we we're talking about this idea. We have a problem right now, many of us. Certainly, I see this all over in North America right now, and it's so easy to buy into. We have life experiences, and then we come to the Word of God and try and understand Scripture. Is that a fair observation? We do something, we experience something, we see something. We have it backwards. Completely, fundamentally backwards. What do we need to do? We need to start with the declaration of God to understand life. And when we get those two reversed, we wind up making ourselves the one who gets to decide things. But when we understand that it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that comes and speaks to us and helps us to understand what's going on, when it's the Word of God that declares, this is truth, this is what God is, this is who God is, this is what God wants to do, this is who I am, this is who you are, when we hear that declaration, I can then look at life and understand because my life is determined, my life is interpreted through the Word of God, not the other way around. But I'm human, and so often I have an experience that something good happens or something bad happens, and then I read Scripture and go, okay. Instead of reading Scripture and having Scripture tell me, how do I understand this? In the Minor Prophets, love the Minor Prophets, the prophet comes repeatedly in the book of the Twelve. There's twelve Minor Prophets, all speaking different times over about 500 years. Repeatedly they come and tell Israel, this is why you're in the situation you're in. The Word of God comes through the prophet to explain life. As we come to the question of revival, we're reminded here in Acts chapter 1, we need to center ourselves on the Word of God. And my fifth observation from Acts chapter 1, Jesus Christ is coming back. That's becoming profound to me. Now, 
bear with me here. I'm a theology professor, which means I spend all my time thinking and talking about thinking and critiquing other people's thinking. It's a fun job. I'm pretty sure from day one they were trying to get rid of me. I've been with the college now 17 years. The very first classes I was asked to instruct in, spiritual gifts, the role of women, and eschatology or end times, which are the three most controversial topics in the church. So I'm pretty sure they simply wanted to get rid of me and just never got around to it. With eschatology, this idea of when is Jesus coming back, I have to be honest, just to be blunt, kind of tired of that conversation because I've heard so many people argue, well, it's pre-mill, well, it's post-mill, well, it's all-millennial. We could talk about those another time. I'd happily put on a workshop. Uh, I had one of my alumnus dads pull me, he kind of just taking shots at me. He's like, what do you mean you're not a, you know, I think he accused me of being a, I, I wasn't a, a pre-tribulation rapture guy necessarily. I wasn't prepared to sign off on it. And he was just horrified. Maybe the rapture comes before the tribulation. Maybe it doesn't. It's actually a very interesting conversation. But I've heard this debated so often. And so for me, I just kind of go, ah, do we need to talk about this? Then I started teaching the book of Thessalonians. Paul's in Thessalonica a couple of weeks, gets driven out of the city, and when he writes to them, we discover what's one of the very first things Paul talks to the Thessalonians about. Jesus is coming back, and here's the stuff you need to know. Ah, okay, maybe the second coming is a lot more important than I'd ever given it credit for in my young, idealistic, misguided thinking. You know what? The second coming of Christ needs to overshadow everything that we say and do. He's in Thessalonica a couple weeks. What does he instruct them in? That Jesus Christ was dead, buried, resurrected according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and what's one of the very first things he then goes on to talk about? He's coming back imminently. And we need to understand this idea. Jesus is coming back because it puts an urgency to what we do. It puts a perspective on the value of life. Again, the Word of God now comes and critiques. And when I understand that Jesus is coming back as the sovereign king to reclaim everything, it forces me to really come to terms with that idea. He is Lord of the universe and my knee will bow. And it will either bow in joy and surrender and, and gratitude or in terror and in fear and knowing that judgment's about to fall. Jesus is coming back. You can't have the empty cross and the empty tomb without the returning king. I don't know where we're going as a church yet. I don't even live here yet. But God has begun to lay some things on my heart. And interestingly, he's laid them on so many people's hearts in this place. We need to discern as a community, what is God calling us to? Who is God calling Arendelle Alliance Church to be? But I would suggest to you, we cannot stray from Scripture at all. Once we move off Scripture, well, what authority do we have? So as we come to Acts 1, 
we see what's going to need to be in some of our DNA, what needs to be absolutely central to who and what we are as we do the work of Jesus Christ. We need to constantly put in front of ourselves, we serve a resurrected king who's coming back for us. We serve a resurrected king who sent his spirit to guide us into all truth. We serve a resurrected king who gave us his word, scripture, has given us the spirit that we can understand scripture, has given us each other to speak the truth to one another. And we need to be centered on these things. We need to be praying for revival. We need to be praying for our world. We need to take the kingdom out by the power of the spirit and in the truth of scripture and knowing our king is coming back soon.